Thank you. Thank you. I, I know that you guys can hear me, but we're online, so it picks it up that way. Um, yeah, wouldn't it be cool if we all had a t-shirt, one of those North Park t-shirts for uh, the Fireman's Banquet? Yeah. We'd all be together, you know, uh, color coordinated, I guess. Or, and also to order a couple extra ones so that we can give them to our firefighters. Yeah? Good idea, Ken. Glad you thought of it. No, no, it's okay. I'll pay for it. It's all right. <laughs> Let's open up our, our Bibles to Ephesians chapter, Philippians chapter 4. Thank you, Ken. So, he was getting ready to throw something at me. We're in Philippians. Last week I called the Philippians the Philippines. <laughs> okay, well, I mean, I know you know what I meant. <clears throat> but in Philippians chapter 4, the very first word in verse 1 is therefore. Exactly. Now, if this is something that an old pastor taught me a long time ago, when you see the word therefore, you want to go back and to see why that word is therefore. So basically what Paul is doing, he says, you know, I just shared this information with you. Now, we have to remember that this is a letter, an actual letter. There were no chapters, there were no verses, there were no headings. It was just one complete thought. And so therefore, <laughs> what Paul was doing is he was giving the information to the people in Philippi. Not in the Philippines, but in Philippi. And as he was giving this information out to them, it was one complete thought. And so they knew exactly what he had just talked about. But what we've been doing is we take it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And what we're doing is we're doing a, a, a study of the word and, and seeing the, 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 what, what Paul is trying to get across at that time. The time, the situation in that life, what they were going through, what they were experiencing, the culture. Uh, we know that this is the, the, the city of Philippi. That in this church actually wasn't necessarily like a church building. They probably met in homes or a big home where they all got together. And it was a Roman colony. It was a Rome away from home. Rome was, you know, hundreds of miles away still. But this is where everybody came to settle. All the Romans, uh, the, the military personnel, they, they would retire here. So it became a very prominent city and a very prominent city for Rome. And one of the things that we didn't capitalize on, well, let me just go back here, first of all. Therefore, Paul says, therefore, when he says, therefore, we have to go back at least a few verses. But I want to start off in chapter 3 where he says, finally, my brothers, I, I rejoice in the Lord. And Paul's letter, this book, the Philippians uh, letter is a letter of rejoicing, of joy. And you remember, we've talked about that. Paul is just having a great time and just enjoying life while he's in prison. And so it, it causes us to stop and think, you know, well, what about my life? How come I can't rejoice? And Paul is telling us, it's almost a command that you rejoice. I want you to rejoice. The problem is, is that you cannot force an emotion onto anybody. Rejoice or joy is, is something that you, you have to actually have inside of you. It's part of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. It's part of the, the fruit of the Spirit. So Paul starts off in chapter 3 by saying rejoice. He says, look out for those that want to cause you harm. We spent a lot of time on that last week. We actually, we left here, went to 1 John chapter 4, how to test the spirits. And Paul says, you have to be careful. Jesus says you have to be careful. John the Baptist said you have to be careful. I mean, there's person after person, apostle after apostle saying, watch out for those people in the pews, in the pulpit, those within your mixed. Paul even said to the people in uh, the elders of Ephesus, he tells them, he says, you know, when I leave here, those evildoers are going to come in and they're going to ramble everything up. And he's going to, they're going to mess everything up. All the teachings that I've taught you, you got to be careful. You got to be like the Bereans. You got to look at the word, study the word, know the word, and not just take people for granted. 
And I, I challenged you last week, don't take the, what I say for granted. Look at the word, study it. And it's unfortunate that in today's culture, it's very easy. It's very easy to deceive people because of the lack of information that people have about the Bible. As a matter of fact, and I've said this a few times already in Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is asked, when are all these things going to take place? And one of the questions that is always asked about, you know, about the Word of God and the, the events that are taking place, you know, when the corona hit, when the war started, and, and, and all these other things, earthquakes, people always come to me, is this the end? Are these the signs that we are to be looking for? Jesus himself, he said this, he says, I want you to, the very first thing is do not be deceived. That was the first thing he said. And deception within the church and how church should be done and how we should focus on, on the spirit or the pastor or the personality or the events or all those things. The word of God is what we focus on. And as Paul is saying this, he says, you know, and, and I have been pretty vocal about some people that, you know, you know and I don't, I don't call them dogs, first of all, but Paul does. People even say to me, you know, that's not very biblical. You want me to get biblical? Let me show you what Paul says. I can get biblical, but I'd rather not. I'm sharing with you. I'm just telling you to be careful. I'm warning you. Be careful because that's the very first thing Jesus said at the end times. Do not be deceived. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say a little bit later, you, you know, you, you, it might be possible to even deceive the elect if possible. That's how deceptive, that's how wonderful this is all going to look. Again, we talked about this quite a bit last week. So Paul is saying, therefore, look at my credentials. If anyone has anything to boast about, it would be me. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, the people of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, is to the law. A Pharisee, he says, man, I knew the law forwards and backwards. As the zeal, man, I went out of my way just to persecute that which I thought was wrong, the church. And he says, you know, and under the law, blameless. I, I had the law, I knew the law, I memorized the law, I followed it to the T. There was nothing that anybody could say about me because of the law and everything that I did because of how I was able to memorize it and study it and understand it. And Paul says, you know what? And I count that all as loss. All of that is as, as loss. It's, it's no good. It's waste. It's, it's farther away from me. I, I don't want any of that stuff. I count it all as loss for the, for the knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. And him crucified, Paul says, that's what I want to focus on. And, and so he goes on to say, he says, be, be careful and study and know and understand and follow our example. He says, not that I've already obtained that. I'm not there yet. You, you know, and here's Paul at the end of his life, already 30 years in the ministry, planting churches, raising up disciples and leaders. Here he is 30 years later and he's saying, you know, I've not even arrived. I'm still a wretched fool. I, I know that I'm a sinner and the chief one to boot. He says, you know, I, I, I've... I've tried to do the best I can. And he says, not that I've already obtained this. I'm not perfect, he says, but I press on. I keep going forward. See, it's not your perfection. It's your direction. It's not you being perfect as far as doing everything correctly, Paul says. You know, it's where you're going to, how you're being directed to where you got to go. And Paul says this. He says, my eyes are on heaven. I fix my eyes on him. I consider that I have not made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and moving forward to what is ahead. And so then Paul says this, this is the very important challenge that I think we should try to have as well. He says, imitate me, imitate us. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. 
People have said to me before, you know, don't follow me. Ah, I'd lead you astray. I'm not perfect. It's, no, you're, you're not perfect. You're not. However, you should be living a life of direction, not perfection. A life of direction that people can follow and emulate. You should be open and honest about your sin. You should be open and honest about your fails, your faults. We see it. You should be honest about who you are and recognize that you're a sinner. We need, we need to be saved. We are saved, but we need to continually ask for forgiveness. We have to just continue to come forward and repent. When I sin, we talked about this today, this morning in class. When I sin, you know, I, I feel terrible about the sin. You should, because I've offended a holy God. And when I offend a holy God, my spirit is not easy within me. And the Holy Spirit has convicted me because that's what the Holy Spirit's responsibility is. Jesus said that he will convict the world of sin. And when I get convicted, I know, and, and it grieves me because it grieves the Holy Spirit. And I ask God, forgive me, Lord. I, I don't want to do that anymore. And give me the strength and the power to just move forward. Unfortunately, there are a lot of believers that believe that and say that, you know, yeah, well, you know, I messed up, but it's okay because God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. And so I'm a work in progress. A lot of these cop-outs. And, and people are comfortable in their sin. They like their sin. And they're okay with it because, you know, that's a part of who they are. That's just who I am. Jesus knew that when he saved me. You know, I have to question that kind of regeneration because the Bible says when you're born again, you're born again. Brian spanking you. Those who are in Christ have become a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. That doesn't make you perfect. That makes you a project and your direction going forward, not perfection. Paul says, you know, I, all these things I'm telling you, he says, you know, there's people out there that live like enemies of the cross and Again, last week we talked about that. And here's one of the things that we didn't talk about much. I didn't really touch on it. He says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. That's what he says. Our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, we're just passing through. This is not our home. We're not to be fixated upon this planet and what this planet has to offer us. We're not supposed to be fixated upon the things of this world, the politics of this world, the, the world in itself. We went through a long list of why we should not be part of the world. Because the world hates Jesus. Because the world hates God. Because God says that this world is going to be destroyed. Because the world is opposed to the word. Everything that the world has to offer is opposed to the word of God. Either you're going to follow the word or you're going to follow the world. You're going to follow this culture or you're going to follow Christ. And the best thing to do is to focus on what Paul is saying here. He says that our citizenship is in heaven and from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that abides in him, that, oh, I'm sorry, enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Father in heaven, thank you for this powerful work of, of Paul that, that you, Holy Spirit, had led him to, lead, to write. You carried him along as you did all the prophets. And you, you gave him these words to pen to this small church in Philippi. But now we, we sit here 2,000 years later to contemplate, to look at and read. And, and you've empowered your word and it has changed the lives of many people. And I pray that your word is so transforming today. That it, help us, that it helps us to stand firm, to stand in Christ, to stand in the Lord, to stand ready, to rejoice in the Lord, to, to be ready, Lord, 
And I pray, Father, that you lead us this morning in all things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your, uh, just your love and devotion for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul says this, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yoida and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of the, my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul comes out three times and says, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord. He says, stand firm in the Lord, agree in the Lord, and rejoice in the Lord. You see, if we're going to do anything, if you're going to do anything worthwhile, it needs to be in the Lord. If there's anything that you're going to do in this world, anything that you're going to save for, you're going to strive for, you're going to work for, anything that you want to invest your life in, spend your life in, you know, anything you want to do in this world, it needs to be in the Lord. Because that's the only thing that's going to last. There are people that are spending their entire life, days that turn into weeks, and weeks that turn into months, and months that turn into years in trying to build their own kingdom when, beloved, you don't take it with you. You know, and we are, we are fooled by this world thinking that that's what we ought to strive for. We want to build the kingdom for what? To leave it for somebody else? That's why we're spending our kids' inheritance right now. <laughs> that which we thought we were going to leave to them, we're just going to take it out now. And people have gotten to the point and fixated on the world that the world is all there is. And yes, it's difficult to let go. Yes, it's difficult to, to just strive, you know, all these years and then come to the end where there's nothing left. Paul is saying here, he says, what I want you to do is, is if you're going to do anything, do it in the Lord. Number one, I need to stand firm in the Lord. There are people that I've talked to in the past, people that are very political. They are either on the left or the right, blue or, or, or red, and, and they stand firm on their political beliefs. And, and you know, for that's what they do. They stand firm on what they believe. Either they are uh, you know, for or against, whatever the case may be. And everything they spout, everything they say, everything they do, again, you know, if you want to be political, it's fine. But to build your life in politics, to build your life on a sports team, people that have invested hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on their sports memorabilia, the, the, the teams, the colors, and everything else, where they invest everything that they have on their, their extracurricular activities, like maybe boating or you know, driving up the, up the mountains, you know, motorcycle, whatever the case may be. If you're going to build your life on anything, build it in the Lord. Now, is boating wrong? No, it's not wrong. I have a boat. Is riding a motorcycle wrong? No, I have a motorcycle as well. But that's not my focus. I use my motorcycle to minister to people. I want to use my boat to minister to people. I want to be able to use that as a, as a platform to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you, you know, any off-road vehicles that you might have, whatever the case, are those things wrong? No, they're not. But when that becomes the focus of your life, the focus of the weekend, this weekend is ideal for that. You know, people are out going to Las Vegas, I mean to Las Vegas. You know, that's where they want to focus and build their life on. And uh, unfortunately, many people come back frustrated and they clog up the freeways <laughs> all the way up there and all the way back. And again, is a vacation wrong? No. But when that is all that you're standing on, Paul says, whatever you do, stand 
firm in the Lord, he says. That's where you need to stand firm. The, the, the Greek word stand firm is the, was a military term. It's a military term where you are standing when you're being attacked. It's a, it's a defensive uh, move as well as an offensive move. And, and when somebody attacks you, you want to stand firm. And, and the way you stand is going to determine if you're going to fall right away or not. Of course, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you've ever taken any kind of boxing or any kind of lesson in, in uh, wrestling or karate or jiu-jitsu, whatever the case may be, you don't want to stand like this in front of your opponent. You stand like this in front of your opponent, then it's very simple to just to knock you over just by pushing you over. And so if you, want to, if you want to stand against another person, what you want to do is you want to stand like this. So it's difficult to knock you over. And so what Paul was referring to when he says stand firm, I want you to stand in such a way that you're not easily knocked over. And it's, it's amazing how many Christians stand like this, you know, in their struggles, in their tears, in their work environment, in their homes. They stand open, opened up like this and, and face, facing things this way, trying to take it all on. And they're being pushed back and forth and, and, and knocked down because of their stance in Jesus Christ isn't solid. Paul says, stand firm because this world is going to throw everything it can at you. This world wants to knock you down. This world wants to destroy you. As a matter of fact, Jesus even promised it. He said in John chapter 16, verse 33, I have said these things to you. He's talking about all the things that are going to happen to them, that in me you may have peace. And then he gave this promise. In the world, you will have tribulations. Okay? Just know that up front. If you're a believer... If you're, if you're standing firm, if you're trying to do what's right, trying to get your direction correct, and you know it's not perfection, and every time you start moving in the right direction, guess what? Tribulations will come. Trials will come. Things will happen in your life. And, and I've heard this before as well. People say, you know, the moment that I became a Christian, it just seems like everything went wrong. I started going to church, and everything starts to happen. And I can't believe it. Maybe I should just stop going to church. You know, beloved, I'm going to tell you something. Those things were going to happen anyways. And the best place to be when those things happen is in the church. With people that love you. The people will pray for you. The people will encourage you. The people will help you along the way. Because that's what the body of Christ is supposed to be. And we encourage one another. And and Jesus promised that you're going to have tribulations, especially if uh, if you are part of the body of Christ. uh, In Acts chapter 14, Paul tells them, Strengthen the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, Paul told Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. You will be persecuted. Now, when we think of persecution, we think about, of course, the things that are happening overseas. Christians being burned in cages, beheaded. That kind of persecution, their family's taken away. They have these, these, uh, these, these signs that they put up called infidel. They put, they put, um, it's, it's like this little mark, almost a fish hook with the dot, which is a noon or, or an N in, uh, in, in the Arabic, Arabic, uh, Arabic language. And that, that noon or that N, they paint it on people's houses when they find out that you're a Christian. And they identify who you are. And that N stands for Nazarene. You're part of the Nazarene tribe. Or you're part of that Nazarene group, which Jesus Christ was a Nazarene. When they mark your house, then it's, hey, anybody can do whatever they want with you. And the cops won't even come out to protect you. Because you are now an infidel. And so in in parts of the world right now, Christians are being persecuted. You may not be persecuted in such a way. 
But you are being persecuted by your thoughts, your beliefs, your ideas. We have right now um, on the books uh, a law called AB 506. Uh, California Assembly Bill 506 is a bill that says that uh, nonprofit organizations that deal with children or youth need to go through some sort of training. To, and it's mandated that we go through training. Uh, churches, youth groups, whatever, boys clubs, football, soccer. We have to go through. We have to have two people that can report these incidents of child neglect or child abuse. Now, on the surface, it sounds good. And on the surface, it sounds okay. Yeah, well, we should have. The schools have been doing this. There's some organizations that already do this. But now it's extended into the nonprofit organizations like the churches. So our insurance company called us and says, you know, wrote us and says, you have to go through this training. It's mandated by the state of California. And not only that, you'll have to report such incidents if it, if it ever happens. Or I can be put in jail or the person that didn't report can put in jail and find and all kinds of stuff. Now, on the surface, it looks good. But when you think about all the other things that are going on politically, culturally, all the things that are going on, you, you know that they have what's called now a law against conversion therapy, meaning that if somebody comes up to you and says, you know, well, I'm homosexual and I believe I was born that way. Well, here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, oh, no, that's hate speech. You can't do that. You're hating the individual by telling them that God loves him. And because you've done that, you have now violated the clause of conversion therapy. You can't convert somebody like that. That's just who they are. And now, with the school systems promoting this transgenderism, this, all this stuff that's going on within the school system, and if a preacher or somebody tries to say something to the effect, well, you know, you're not, you're, you're, there's only a, a boy and a girl. It was only Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You know, <laughs> you're not that way. Then, according to the state of California now, I am a violation of 506. I need to be reported and I need to be put in jail because of my abuse towards that child. Now, on the surface, it looks good, but when you look into it, that's where it's going to, beloved. Persecution of that nature is already happening. Persecution of that nature is taking place within the state of California and the United States and around the world. And they're closing people down. And it's getting worse, and it's getting worse, and it's getting worse. The point is, is that what are we going to do? What's going to happen? When Adam and Steve show up and say, hey, we want to be married. What's going to happen? How are we going to address this? How are we going to walk through this? And there are churches right now that are dealing with this exact same issue. And just so you know, years ago, about, oh, I wouldn't say that many years, about five, maybe six years ago, we had changed the things in our Constitution to reflect our beliefs and our stance on certain issues like that. And so what's taking place in the world right now, Paul says you need to stand firm. Now, when Paul was talking to the people there, he, he knew that Philippi was a Roman city. And the Romans, they operated and they ran it. And so they had their own gods, their own ideas, their own thoughts. As a matter of fact, the Romans would call the Christians atheists. You guys only have one God? <laughs> we have all kinds of them. What's wrong with you guys? And they would make fun of them. They, when they were taking the Lord's table, the bread and the, and the, and the, the wine, when they were taking the, the sacraments, they would call them uh, cannibals. You guys are eating flesh? You guys are drinking blood? 
you know, of Jesus? Well, it's symbolic. It's not really that. And so there was that persecution. There was that, that tension that always takes place within the culture. Paul says, stand firm. As a matter of fact, he says in 2 Thessalonians in your outlines, chapter 2, verse 15. He says, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. It was already happening. It was taking place. And so everywhere Paul went, he told them, stand firm. Peter even said so in 1 Peter 5.12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Don't be, don't be moved. Stand firm. Be ready. Be, be ready like a soldier and be ready for the attacks. Be ready for those arrows. Be ready for whatever might come at you. Stand firm. People, Paul tells people, uh, the people in Corinth, he says, be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong, he says. Our culture today, they're trying to take away uh, masculinity. They're trying to take that away. They say we're too aggressive. We're too, uh, whatever the case may, may be. They're dumbing down sports. They're, they're causing all, you know, they're causing all this, this feminization of the sports. You know, when I started to see the football players wearing pink in support of breast cancer, I go, it's, that's been going on for some time. And, and it's, they're, they're just dumbing down a lot of things. They're trying to take masculinity out of this culture in so many different ways. Paul says, act like men. Be strong. 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. Once again, immovable. That's the picture that Paul is pointing here. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Beloved, I know you're going through some stuff. I, I don't even want to pretend that I know some of the stuff that you're going through. I don't want to belittle any of the stuff that you're going through. However, in the, what this world has, you have not seen its full effect as of yet. It is coming. And it continues to come. And it's very subtle. And it's coming in very subtly. But you see pictures of it. You see, you get hints of it from the government. You get hints of it from the news. And when you start putting two and two together with God's word, you start to realize there is something happening within the church, within the body of Christ. Number two, Paul says, agree in the Lord. I entreat Yoidia. And I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You know, Paul didn't want to leave anybody out. He talked about these two women and it's very, I don't know about you, <laughs> but how would you like to be remembered as those two people that caused division within the church? You know, and, and he, he called them out by name. <laughs> you know, we know these people's name. We know these ladies' name. And these ladies' name in the church was, uh, you know, they, were per, they must have been pretty prominent. And according to tradition, these women were prominent. They were prominent women. They were businesswomen in a sense. They, they kind of held the church together. Yet they had a difference of opinion. We don't believe it was doctrinal. Otherwise, Paul would have said, you know what? You're right. She's wrong. You know, he would have said that. But it was something probably personal, probably, uh, you know, something culturally, whatever was going on. Maybe it was a business matter that they were going through, but it was causing a rift within the church. So much so that Paul had to identify them in this letter that we today, 2,000 years later, these two women go down in history as those that were dividing the church. Okay? Now, I always kid around, right? And I, I say, you know, I mean, this is, this is some, something that somebody told me. Not, I don't want to tell you who that name is, but his initials are uh, James Silva. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, I, I just say the full name. I don't want to say his name, but his name, you know, and Paul wasn't like that. He says, these are who they were. And as a matter of fact, look at this. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. You know, I beg. You know, I'm begging you women. You know, get this together. It's just, not, it's just not good for the church. It's not good for the fellowship. Something was happening that the leadership of this church did not focus on the problem. They just, well, maybe they'll figure it out. You know, those women, you know, every time they, they get mad, and they just, I can't even get a word in edgewise. I don't know if I can even get in and say something, you know, because I might be cut up. And, you know, whatever it was, that leadership was very, very poor. It should have been stronger. It should have been able to deal, deal with this. But Paul is writing from Rome. He's writing from prison. And it takes weeks, if not months, for a letter to get there. First of all, to write it, and then to get it there. And so whatever he's heard, he's already heard about this weeks or months prior to this. So there's this tension going on that has been going on for some time, and people have not dealt with it. You know, within the church, beloved, we want to deal with issues. We want to deal with anything that you may be going through. If you have a problem with me or with anybody else, I entreat you, please, go to that individual. As a matter of fact, the proper biblical way to do it is what Jesus says. You know, if a brother sins against you, you go up to him. You go up to him. You talk to him. You talk to him and you let him know what's going on. Almost 85% of the time, people are going to say, you know what? I didn't really mean it that way. I'm sorry. You know what? And it'll be resolved right there. If it doesn't get resolved and you haven't won your brother back, that's what the whole purpose of that is, is you take somebody else with you. Look, this is what's going on. I've talked to you about this. Yeah, well, that's your opinion. I don't care what it, you know. So then after that, second time, then you bring it to the church. And if the brother's not willing to uh, repent or be reconciled, then the Bible says, well, you put him out. Treat him like a, a Gentile, a tax collector. In other words, you treat him as, he's, as if he wasn't saved. Not that you kick him out, but you start evangelizing him. Share the gospel with him. Share the message of Jesus Christ. Why forgiveness is so important. And you treat him as a person that does not know Jesus Christ. And you're not equally yoked with this person. It's not to kick people out of the church. All of it is the process of reconciliation. The problem is that the way we do it in some churches is something, somebody offends me and I go tell everybody else. Oh, you know what? You, you know what? I'm going to pick on James just because I know he won't mind. You know what James did to me? What? Oh, we need to pray for him. Why? Oh, that rascal. You know, and then I just, you know, we're going off and on and I say, wow, that's messed up. Yeah, you know, and okay, and we forget to pray. We kind of hide it. <laughs> we kind of hide it very spiritually. Oh, we need to pray for this brother. Why? What's happening? But let me tell you. <laughs> let me tell you, comadre. Let me see what happens. Here's what, here's what happened. You know, let me just break it all down for you from the beginning to the end. That's the way some people do it. Or they go tell somebody else. And then finally, at the end, everybody's all mad at this person. This is, well, what happened? What, what's going on here? Oh, you know what? Well, we don't want to tell you. It's, you know, the person that should know, nobody's even communicating with that person. When, as I mentioned before, if you would just go straight up to him, maybe, maybe he said something he didn't realize, or he said it, and he goes, yeah, you know, that was kind of wrong. I shouldn't have said that. I'm sorry. But by that time, it's too late. Agree in the Lord. If you're going to agree on anything, on anyone, with anything, that's good to agree with people in your sports team. Of course you want fans that root for the same football team, baseball team, soccer team. Of course you want people on your political side. Of course you do. But if you're going to agree on anything, agree in the Lord. In the Lord, you want to do this. It's important that we keep the Lord in the center and focused 
on what it is that we should do. In Ephesians, oh, before I go there, um, he talks about, he, here he says, you know, I, I fought side by side with these guys. Oh, he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion. True companion seems to be somebody that he didn't identify. Why he didn't identify them, we don't know. Uh, it could be the church, it could be a brother, it could be somebody else. But he's saying, I want you, true companion, you're, you're the one that works with me, to help these women who have labored side by side with me. See, these, these women were not non-Christians. Sometimes, even within the church, even within the, the brothers and the beloveds, you know, we, we, we rub each other the wrong way, and we should. You know why? Because we're all a bunch of sinners. <laughs> you know, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're not perfect. We're trying to go in the right direction. And if I rub you the wrong way or if something happens, please come up to me. Talk to that person. I'm going to talk to you. But he does identify Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. And then he says, whose names are in the book of life. The book of life is so important. The Jewish people understood this book. That's where everybody's name that is written that is to inherit eternal life. Or the bosom of Abraham. Or paradise. Or heaven, in a sense. Ephesians chapter 1 says that our names were written uh, from the foundations of the world. That that book of life that is opened uh, in the book of Revelation, all the names that are written on it, that were written on it from the foundations of the world. From the very beginning, God says, these are mine. And these are the ones that I'm going to send Jesus Christ to die on the cross for. These are mine. And he has your name. If you've committed your life to Christ, if you're striving for direction, not perfection. If you're striving to get to where God, ha- God wants you to be, holiness. If you desire God, if you're striving, it's because God has placed your name in the book of life from the very beginning. And so we don't have to worry about all that other stuff. This is why we should just agree with one another. I mean, it's good to have some tension when the theology is wrong and when the do- teaching is wrong, the doctrine. You know, if it's, if it's wrong, you know, we need to battle this out. How does this work? And Paul's not talking about that. If it was theology, if it was doctrinal, he would have said, you're right, you're wrong, end of story. But something was going on there that Paul says, deal with it. Because it's, it's causing this havoc within the church. Ephesians 4.3 uh, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Colossians 3.14 And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It's difficult to bring unity when there is no love. The back of your, back of your outline, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. Now, in, in this culture of economicalism, economicalism is the thought of getting all these faiths and putting them together. We're putting all these faiths together and we're going to be united. We're going to be one. We're going to have harmony. All these faiths from different backgrounds are all going to come together and be one. This is not what Paul is talking about. When he says, I want you all to agree that there may be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. The same mind, which mind? Well, the mind of Christ. When you think about what Jesus Christ has died for, what he's done for this planet. So we we come together understanding that Jesus Christ is the one true Savior. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We agree on that. 
And we agree that we're moving in this direction as a church. Now, when somebody else comes in here and says, well, and this is what happened to the people in Galatia. Paul wrote a letter to the Galatians, and in the Galatians, he tells them, I can't believe that you guys are following a different gospel, that you have to do something to be saved. You don't do anything to be saved because Jesus Christ has completed the finished work. It's been done on the cross. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Not by knocking on doors, not by being circumcised, not by following traditions, not by whatever the case, displaying a very different spiritual gift or a very specific spiritual gift. It's by grace alone. That's it. It's not by, you can't do this. God has to do this in you. And, and all these different thoughts and ideas and religions that want to be coming together and be, be one, my question is, how do you reconcile regeneration? Regeneration is being born again. How do you reconcile that? Because some people say, well, you got to say certain prayers, or you got to do so many treks to Mecca, or you have to knock on so many doors, or, or whatever the case may be. There's Jesus Christ plus, where the gospel is Jesus Christ only. And that's it. That's how God set it up. And he set it up from the foundations of the world. So when Paul is saying to agree with one another, when he says that there shouldn't be any divisions, but that we should be united in the same mind, what is the mind? It's the heart. That's the idea. That's the understanding. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, do not be conformed to the pattern, do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You be transformed by God's spirit, by God's word, and taking out all that garbage that I've learned in the past and putting in God's word. Just replacing. Conversion therapy. There you go. First <laughs> Peter 3.8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. See, Paul's letter to the people in Philippi says, get these women to agree. Get them to agree so that you guys can be united. Everybody should be united in one. And, and because we're all written in the, we're all going to the same place, unless you're not. Then Paul says there are those that are coming in to divide and cause all kinds of division within the church. Number three, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord, always, he says. Again, I will say, rejoice. This letter has been known as a letter of joy. We've gone through this already, but let me just remind you once again. If you go back to chapter 1 of the book of Philippians, in chapter 1, verse 4, he says, Always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Paul says, I'm just excited about who you are. I'm excited about what God's doing in your life. Down in verse 14, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed in that I rejoice. Paul says, you know, when Jesus Christ is being proclaimed, that brings me joy. Uh, the very next verse. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that although your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knew that regardless of what was going to happen to him in, in this prison, he was going to be delivered. And he rejoiced because of that. And then in verse 20, uh, 25, convicted of this, I know that I will remain and continue with 
you all for your progress and joy in the flesh. Chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Paul says, I want you to be of the same mind. That would make me very happy. Verse 17, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice. Paul is rejoicing, joy, he's joyful, he's rejoicing and rejoicing. And then once again here in chapter 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he's going to say it again in verse 19, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. That now at length you have revived your concern for me. And the whole process of, of being in the Lord is to have joy. Joy is not something you can just fake. Joy is not something that, you know, you, you can make happen. But Paul has given us a command here. Rejoice. I want you to rejoice. And you know what? I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Always rejoice. As I said in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Finding my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord, if you're going to rejoice in anything, if you're going to rejoice in anything in this world, let it be in the Lord. Not in politics, not in sports, not in anything else. You can have fun of those things, but genuine joy that comes in spite of all the things that are going on in life come from the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, this is what we rejoice in. And 4.10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, he says. In Psalms 13.5, The psalmist says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. If you want to have something to rejoice in, rejoice in the salvation. Rejoice in the fact that you've been saved. Think about the consequences of those that haven't been regenerated. Think about those that are depraved. Think about those that that aren't, aren't going to be able to stand before God. And it's amazing on all the funerals that I've done and everything that I've ever done, Everyone seems to go to heaven, you know, because the person just died. But there's something about knowing your salvation. You know, and I've done funerals for various walks of life, people that are, you know, in in walks of life. And it's not because of who, you know, just getting to that point. Joy, genuine joy will help you to understand that regardless of what happens, we're going to heaven. And if there are people in your life and in your circle of influence that don't know who Jesus Christ is, the joy of your salvation should be given to them. Look, man, you can have the same joy. Oh, yeah, things are not working out well for me in my life, but I have joy anyways. You know, I might be in prison, like Paul says, but I have joy. I rejoice anyways. You know, I, I might be locked up in chains, but I'm going to sing songs anyways, for this is the day the Lord has made. And what? I will rejoice and be glad in it, because this day that the Lord has made, I'm standing in it. I've come this far, and by the grace of God, I was able to wake up and take a deep breath, and here I am. One more day. One more day. And it's, we're going to talk about this next week. It's amazing in how people worry and fret and are anxious. As a matter of fact, let me just kind of read that a little bit for you right now. It says here in verse 5, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There it is again. In Christ Jesus. In the Lord. You know, worry is not natural. Okay? And many of you, many people, well not you, many people have said to me, you know, I'm a born worrier. No, you're not. You're not a born worrier. 
you learned how to worry. You learn how to worry. And next week, I'm going to share with you on how that is, you know, as a believer, it is impossible to worry. It should be impossible to worry. Next week, I'll share with you on what Jesus Christ taught about the birds and the, and the flowers, of the, you know, how, how God gave everything to those birds and the flowers. And what, you don't think he's going to worry about you? Worry, you're not a born worrier. You learn, that's a learned behavior. And the good news, beloved, is that because you learned how to worry, you can also unlearn how to worry by the word of God. You can either do one of two things. You can't do them both at the same time. They're not simultaneous. They're incongruent. Either you're going to worry or you're going to worship. Worry is focused thinking on the negative. Worship is focused thinking on God. And you cannot worry while you're worshiping. And you cannot worship while you're worrying. That's just a preview of next week. Okay? This is why we get up every day and we say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so, once again, in Isaiah 61, uh, the second to the last verse there, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. When you know that you know that you know that you know, that you know that you know that God has saved you. You are clothed with that garment of salvation. Let whatever comes, come. And as I've said before about Isaiah, Isaiah was one of those prophets that the people didn't like. They hated him because he told the truth. And they, they killed him. As a matter of fact, tradition has it that they sawed him in two. They cut him in half. God gave him the decree. He gave him the commission, gave him the job to go out and preach. Go and preach to them. And guess what? They're never going to listen to you. The hearts are going to be hardened. They're not going to turn. But preach to them anyways. I would have said, really, Lord? <laughs> Why? I didn't say anything like this. He went out there and he preached and proclaimed. He had a profound experience in Isaiah chapter 6. As he entered the temple, he says that I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory. And the seraphim were flying, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says, whoa, whoa is me. I'm undone. I'm undone. I'm dead. Oh, poor me. You know, pity for, you know, this soul is dead. Because I'm standing here in the presence of God. I am a man of unclean lips, he says. And I live among a people of unclean lips. He knew who he was. But he was given the commission to go and preach. And God told them, they're not going to listen to you, and their hearts are going to be hardened, but I want you to preach anyways. In a sense, that's what a lot of preachers do. Hearts are hardened. Eyes are not open. Ears are closed. Well, that doesn't stop me from preaching. Shouldn't. Shouldn't stop you from preaching either or sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you to stand as we prepare for the Lord's table. If you can get the children's ministry in here as well, Ken. They'd like to partake of uh, this this time as well I started off by sharing with you that the the message of this world is contrary to the message of the, the word and the world is against the church and therefore, therefore by extension it's against you if you're a believer if you feel comfortable and you feel great within the world and things are going your way hey, these are alright you know this pss, I don't know what he's talking about I would seriously ask you to consider your connection with the world. See, sin should make you sick to your stomach. 
It should. I mean, that's just what it does. Sin is, is evil and it's sick. And, and Satan doesn't come to you with, you know, fangs and all that other stuff. But he, he comes to us very subtly and it creeps right in. And, and because God is holy and I'm not, there needs to be a change. And the change is this, repent, is what Jesus told the people in Mark. Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist said the same thing. Repent and turn from your evil ways. When Peter preached his sermon at the day of Pentecost and the men were cut to the heart, they asked, what should we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Repent, repent, repent. We can't just say a prayer and say, okay, it's all done. Repentance is a key. Repentance is a changed life. You cannot go with God and stay at the same place at the same time. You leave the life of sin behind. And every time that I sin, it it sickens me to my stomach and I repent. Lord, please forgive me. And God is gracious and he is merciful and he forgives. For, you know, if I confess my sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. But it begins first and foremost in recognizing that the Holy Spirit is knocking at your door and, and changing you. And then you repent. Right there and then. Father in heaven, there comes a time in each one of our lives when you open our eyes, when you bring us back to life. Because as your word says, we are dead in our trespasses. We're dead to sin. And the only thing that can revive a dead person is you. As you breathe your spirit within our hearts. And as you revive us, Lord, then it gives us the opportunity to repent. You give us the faith to repent. And in and of ourselves, we don't want to repent. We want to keep going in the same direction. Before Christ, we were comfortable in our sin. And it's, it's good, it's okay. But for many of us, Lord, that, that have already experienced your saving grace, sin is just not where we want to be. And I pray for those that are here this morning that you touch the hearts of each one, that they recognize that, number one, that we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. That you came to save a wretch like me. The wages of sin is death. But your free gift of eternal life is for each one that repents. And I pray, God, that from that repentance that we start to move forward and be transformed. Because we know that those who are in Christ are new creations. We know that the old is gone and the new has come. As we prepare for this time to share this communion, this wafer, this juice as we call it, the Lord's table. I pray, Father, that you uh, help us to see just exactly what it is. Help us to see how, um, as Paul had pointed out, it causes us to look backwards, but also to look forward. causes us to look at the cross, what Jesus Christ had endured for us. But it also causes us to look forward to the day that we will share it with him. Thank you, Father, for this reminder, this powerful message, this powerful reminder of the cross and salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.